Blog Talk Radio. Morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some difficult topics sometimes, sometimes funny topics, and uh, sometimes topics that may or may not touch each one of us. I think that the topic we have today touches a lot of us in one way or another, and we have a, an expert here to discuss it with us. We're talking about what does faith have to do with it, churches, spirituality, and intimate partner violence. Carolyn Scott Brown is Director of Learning and Resources for Faith Trust Institute here in Seattle. She's in my area. And her primary responsibilities include helping with uh, uh, faith and community organizations to develop resources and training that they need uh, in order to help victims of domestic and sexual assault, child abuse, uh, dating violence, and even ministerial misconduct. She consults with both national and local community organizations as they partner with faith communities to respond effectively to domestic and sexual violence. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Good, good. I am happy to have this conversation. We talked off air uh, a little bit, and Several years ago, I think it's almost maybe maybe four or five years ago, I ran across a study that said that when women first realize that what they are experiencing is domestic violence or intimate partner violence, 80% of them go to their clergy first for help and advice. And only 20 to 25% of those clergy have received any kind of training in helping someone with domestic violence or in any aspects of domestic violence. And that's not talking about the quality of the training. It's just saying that only about 20 to 25% of them have had any kind of training. Um, I think we can all agree that some training is better than others. Is that consistent with what you have found, Carolyn? Yes, it is. Um, When the women who are survivors um, go and speak with their clergy, many times they find that their clergy are just totally unprepared to address domestic violence. Like you said, they haven't had training, and they don't really know how to respond. And so that's one of the things that we do is we have resources to teach clergy how to address domestic violence, why faith is important, why faith matters is one of our main themes, and to give them some concrete, simple, step-by-step information to help them to understand, number one, what is domestic violence, which is really some people are not clear about the true definition that domestic violence is about power and control. And sometimes they make mistakes because, well, they don't know that they're making mistakes because they haven't received the training. They don't understand that it's not um, helpful to quote scripture and to to tell women that this is their lot in life and they, what if they do to cause him to go off or things like that. Yeah. Well, and first of all, I guess we should lay some groundwork to this. What We're talking about churches, but are we also talking about um synagogues and mosques and any kind of faith community when we are having this discussion? Yes, we are. And, you know, that's a much better way to phrase it. It is any faith community. Uh, we we work with uh, 
many different faith communities, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, just to name a few. Okay. Um, And when we talk about um, a, a woman seeking help, do we talk about shelter or do we talk about advice? Is that usually what you're finding is that women are seeking advice, some sort of validation or ideas on how to deal with this, or are they seeking shelter? Well, um, I would say, first of all, they are to be heard. You know, they want to be able to talk with their clergy member and have someone understand and hear their pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, uh, some, you know on, on a certain level, they will also be seeking shelter and asking for advice, but I think the primary uh, first response is they want someone to listen and believe them. Yeah. It's really important. I think that you're that right. They... I think that, that for many women, for I would venture to say for the bulk of women, and I do say women because we do know that 80 to 95% of domestic violence, women are the victims. Um, so I, I have no compunctions. I don't, I don't do the politically correct thing. Yes, I acknowledge that men can also experience domestic violence, but we're talking a vast majority of, of women as the victims. Um, but I find that in, in the work that I've done um, and in the anecdotal information that I have uh, from women who have experienced domestic violence, it's a slow realization. It, it's not a, a – I think a lot of times people who aren't involved uh, or don't have a background in this think that, oh, all of a sudden everything's going fine, la-di-da, la-di-da, la-di-da. One day he just beats her up, and she should have seen it coming and been able to avoid it, and that's what domestic violence is. And I think it is a more insidious process. I think domestic violence is a process, not an incident. And so when you say that women are seeking out somebody to hear them, I think it's because when they get to the point, they they have evolved and realized in this process that, wait a minute, this this is something wrong. This is wrong. This is not just something that happened. This is a wrong thing. Is that your experience? Yes, it is. And domestic violence, it's the way you have described it, it's so true. It starts out that you have a charming person who says how much he loves you, he'll do anything for you, and then as you spend more time with this individual, they start to do subtle things to put you down, to you know, to um complain and make comments that are very hurtful to you in private and then in public. And then one day you wake up and all of a sudden you can't do anything right. And so these women, as this progresses in this process that you are talking about, they start to try to deal with what they're uh, facing. And it's like walking on eggshells. They don't know from minute to minute what they're doing. So they start to try to do whatever the individual wants, and then they realize it doesn't matter what they do. Sooner or later, the violence is going to start and it's going to escalate. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that is the point at which most women, I think, go starting to seek some help. They, they're really – initially, I think they're seeking validation. Am I, am I interpreting this correctly? Is there something wrong with me? I, what, what's going on here? 
Um, and so I think that you're right. I think that the first contact many women make, uh, if it's not to the police, um, because of a very serious incident, it would be to just have somebody hear them and say, I, I think that a lot of times when women, I think women put out little feelers. You know, I, th- I think they put out little feelers to see if if they mention something to a friend, is the friend going to say, yeah, wow, that that's something odd, or, oh, that just happens. Um, or my favorite one is, well, it takes two, it takes two. So I think for many women, you get the platitudes. During this realization process for women, they're getting the platitudes about how it takes two and how it's give and take and how from people who don't realize that with a domestic violence situation, it's not give and take, it's give and give. Um, and I think that when a woman must get to the point where she's seeking outside help, she wants some sort of validation. Again, I'm I'm trying to lay some groundwork here, and is that your experience? So I guess what I'm saying is, is that when a woman does go to her clergy, she may be just looking for somebody to say, yeah, what you're, you're right, your instincts are right, what you're experiencing here isn't, it's not healthy. Is that your experience? Yes, they're wanting someone to say that um, this is wrong. You know, yeah. you should be safe in your home and your children should be safe in their home. And um, what they usually hear is something like, well, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Keep praying. We all <laughs> go through rough patches. You know, yeah. those yes, kind of platitudes. platitudes. Yep. Yeah. And so... The impact for the woman who's seeking help is to just go back and do more because clearly her thinking is wrong, um, that it's not something major and horrible and awful, that in fact this just happens to everybody and this is just a little bit worse for her because of something that she's just not handling it correctly. She needs to pray more. She needs to bear more. Um, So what's the net effect of that kind of response for a woman who's formulating the idea that she's living in an abuse, she and her children are living in an abusive situation? Well, um, it it leads to a a crisis of faith where the woman is, can totally feel that her faith uh, tradition and that her clergy person is not meeting her needs, or she can be made to feel guilt and feel shame. You know, they can say things like, you know, this is a, sometimes the batterer is a person of high stature or very popular or that people perceive as to be a, a wonderful person because they demonstrate that kind of behavior, of course, in public. But it's very painful to a woman to go to a person that she believes is there to care for her spiritually and that person doesn't understand or doesn't believe that she deserves what's happening to her. It's not her fault, and she deserves better treatment. Yeah, yeah. And some so, women will actually pull away from their clergy member or, you know, pull away from their faith community because of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, and I also, I, I've, I've used my, my this example several times in several different conversations, but I also know of one case where a woman um, went through 
uh, you know, she was having a very difficult time. Her husband did not attend church. Um, she did. She was a member of a of a church and had been for several years. Um, there was a violent incident. Uh, her husband um, basically threw her down the stairs and locked her out in her nightgown in the middle of of, of the winter. Um, she had to go to a neighbor for help. The police came. He was removed from the home. Um, she went to her clergy. She went to her church. Um, they were very supportive the first and second week that she was going through this. And then the third week, she went to church, and there was her husband. And she left because she had a protection order and contacted her minister and said, "I can't. You, I, he can't be there. And the minister said, well, we can't turn him away. He's come to us and asked for help. He wants to find God, so we have to, you know. Well, they were in effect saying, we're going to take care of this person who just came to us, and you are out in the wind. I, I just, right. it, that was several years ago that, that she told me that, and, and it's just always bothered me. It's like, really, she was very active in this church, and she felt that she had a home there and some place to go, and I don't know why. I was thinking, you know, is the church... Was the church really interested in converting someone, her, i.e., her husband, or why would the church not tell that man that he couldn't be there because they have a member who had a protection order? I, I don't understand that. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Yeah, I have. That happens often. Number one, that clergy member like we talked about earlier, hasn't received any training. So they don't really understand what domestic violence is about and they don't really understand that this person, or they may not believe that this person is saying, I want to find God and I, I won't do this again or this was just a one-time thing. You know, they do things to, the batterer does things to minimize what's happening and because these clergy members, many of them have not been trained, they don't understand that that's just part of the manipulation of a batterer. Because really, we believe the number one priority for a clergy member, a family member, or a community member is the, to believe the woman and to put her safety first. We're talking about, you know, life and death here. Many women are sent back home to live in this situation, and eventually many of them lose their lives every year, yeah. every minute, yeah. every day. It, it's, um, it's, it's really an amazing kind of situation. If you would like to join our conversation or if you've had experiences like this, I would love for you to give us a call or go to our chat room. The phone number is 646-378-0430. Three seven eight zero four three zero. Now we're we're dealing with the holiday today, so I know that a lot of people are going to catch this later uh, on the uh, um, archive and, and listen to the show later. But if you are pay, you know there right now, this is a great chance to call in because when you hear it on the archive, you're not going to be able to call in and ask your questions. I also have the chat room open, and if you don't want to go on air asking a question, just type in your uh, uh, response, your comment, or your your uh, uh, question and I will share it uh, with our guest. So, again, phone call 646-378-0430. So, okay, let's talk about, you, you, uh, and there's one thing I want, before we move on to the next 
thing. I, I want to talk about this because this is such a big issue. Uh, you had mentioned a couple times now that um, the clergy doesn't necessarily know what domestic violence or intimate partner violence really is. And that's one of my hot buttons because I think we live in a culture now, for the last 30 years we've been pretty good about letting people know that black eyes and broken bones are not acceptable, but we fall short of understanding domestic violence or intimate partner abuse short of those broken bones and black eyes. How do you explain to clergy what it means to experience domestic violence? Well, we talk with clergy about the fact that domestic violence is a relationship where one partner threatens and intimidates and harms another person, and it's about control. It's about power and control. This whole myth about she made him angry and he lost his temper and that's why he hit her or kicked her, that's a myth. The batterer knows exactly what they're doing. They are separating her from her friends. They don't want her to go to work. They try to get her to, to do things to cause her to lose her job. They have a lot of negative strategies that they put into place because they want this person to be under their control and to live a life of fear. They want to be able to control her where she's afraid to do anything that they don't want her to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so not just the broken bones and the black eyes. As a matter of fact, uh, it usually starts out with something less than broken bones and black eyes. So, okay, so what do we do about this? What do we do about this? 80% 80% approximately of women who seek help from clergy who don't know how to help? Well, we need to help clergy understand that they need help and training. And one of the things that we recommend that they do is to establish a partnership with a local domestic violence agency so that that organization can be a resource and they can refer the survivor to that shelter or that agency or that social service organization. And they need to understand that their role is encouragement, comfort, and prayer for the survivor. And they need to understand that they should get training so that they can make their faith community a safe place for women to disclose. Because think about if one out of four women are being abused. If the, if you have a church of 100 people, you know, you do the math. That You have yeah. that many women that are being abused, and many of them don't feel comfortable to talk to clergy members or other congregants about what they're facing. Yeah. It's a, it's so a, it's they, a stigma, you know, to talk about it. So, yeah, they're not necessarily going to just pop up and, and talk about it openly. Yes, and so I believe that the clergy should um, educate themselves about domestic violence, educate their uh, congregants. They should understand their role of pastoral leadership, that they need to be equipped to respond. They need to set up domestic violence uh, policies and protocols, which one of them would be what we were just discussing is that the batterer is not allowed to come to church. They need to stand and support the survivor and the survivor and her children and not be so concerned with 
you know, the spiritual needs of the batterer. Okay, well, let me put play devil's advocate here. Um, I say, okay, how do I know? I mean, that's what she's saying, but he's saying something completely different. They're both members of my church. How do I serve both of them? How do I know that what she's saying is exactly what happened? Well, that's where training comes into play because we Ah. teach clergy the questions to ask and the signs. What are the signs that a person is uh, dealing with domestic violence? You know, do you have a person who whenever she's with the batterer, she's a, she doesn't look up or she's afraid to express her opinion? Has she been isolated from her friends and family? Is she a person who often wears a lot of makeup to cover up bruises or wears long clothes? We have a person that is on one of our domestic violence DVDs, and she said that her husband, who was also a minister, would hit her on her arms, on her chest, and on her thighs, so she had to wear long clothes all the time to cover that up. She's always had to wear long sleeves, you know, and um, long skirts or wear pants because she had bruises over her entire body. But he didn't want to hit her in her face and have the black eye because that's the thing or the bruise on her face that most people recognize that something is going on. Yeah. I think that the public public perception of an abuser – um, they just kind of, you know, I mean, you read newspaper articles about people, men just snapping and losing control and something happened. I don't think the public perception of domestic violence um, really encompasses how calculated an abuser can be. Exactly. That is just and, so true. Yeah. And so if I have, I'm a clergy person and if I... And, and I and I've had no training, it it just kind of like um, I, I'm not prepared for the sneakiness, the calculatedness um, of an abuser. I take what they tend to say at face value, just like I take what she has to say at face value, and so there's the conflict there. So what you're saying is that if clergy gets get training um, in what to look for, different signs, then they can... Um, instead of just taking everything at face value, they can put it in a context and make make a determination as to what they think really is the situation? Yes, and they understand that their number one priority is the safety of that woman. So we were just talking about earlier where he would, where a clergy member would listen to the batterer and then listen to her. When a clergy member mentions to the batterer what the wife has said, he's putting that woman's life in danger. That should not happen. What he should do is make sure that he gives her the proper support, referrals, and care to get her to a safe place. That's the priority because we also have a program on premarital counseling and uh, marriage counseling, and we teach clergy that when this happens, you do not bring the woman and the batterer together in your uh, in a location in your church or your office to counsel them because that's putting her life in danger because she has gone ahead and talked to that clergy member about what's happening in her home and the batterer doesn't want anyone else to know because he wants to keep living this, you know, facade that he's a good person and that, you know, he's, uh, you know, not 
a person who would harm his wife or his family. And so we make sure that they understand that you don't do that. You don't bring them in together. You don't go and talk to the man and say, you know, we know most of the time it's a man. A man, oh, your wife told me that you kick her and beat her. You don't go and say that because then when he gets home that day, he's going to kick and beat her even more because she talked. That's why. And people say, well, why doesn't she say anything? Well, that's why they don't say anything. Sometimes they realize, you know, often they realize that um, that's going to put their life in danger. Plus, the statistics tell us that a woman is in more danger at the point that she decides to leave. Because when, she, when when that batterer sees that she's made up her mind to walk away, to go to a shelter, move to another state, or whatever, she, you know, it, she decides to do, that is often the time that she is killed. Yeah, yeah. That's a very unsafe uh, time for a woman. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, so um, I'm trying to kind of put this in... in um, um, some sort of logical presentation here. And one of the things that I read, um, there's a study by Colleen Shannon Louie and Valerie T. Dull, if that means anything to anybody, came out uh, a couple years ago, but it was on the response of Christian clergy to domestic violence. And the point that they made is that the concerns of the victims of domestic violence, who are religious, who are Christian in this particular study, um, is that they they said that the clergy often gives conflicting advice. Um, that what they may feel on a visceral level could be different from what their religious trainings and religious tenets lead them to believe. Now, that's kind of a convoluted question. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes if we look at a woman and we feel like, oh, gosh, you need to get out of there, but then I have a moral belief uh, um, that you don't just get out of there, then I'm likely to give some um, conflicting advice and not very helpful advice. What do, what, how do we address these religious tenets of different um, organizations of different uh, denominations, for example. Um, I'm thinking of churches who say, well, no, you can't get a divorce. We don't believe in divorce, so you just have to go back. What, what about the religious beliefs, and how can they conflict with this whole idea of safety first? Well, um, we have information about theology that we give to a clergy member to say that the Bible says, be subject to one another and love your wife as you do, as I have loved you. So it's like there are many, many religious beliefs in Scripture that talk about the first responsibility of a clergy member is the safety of their flock. And so many of them have religious beliefs that they make the marriage and keeping the family together as the priority based on how that scripture has been misinterpreted. But there is no place in scripture where uh, it is said it is your job and responsibility to beat your wife. You know, it's just that it's misinterpreted and quoted in a, you know, a negative way. And so that's part of the training. 
Yeah, we often hear the quotes, um, I'm not sure necessarily from clergy people, but from um, many times in conversations about religion and domestic violence, you hear the quotes about, uh, you know, a woman should cleave unto her, her husband and that the husband is the head of the household and, you know, that kind of thing. And those are the kinds of scripture that you're saying are often misinterpreted. Right. Okay. Because, I mean, scripture. for every one of those uh, scriptural quotes, there are other quotes um, that say just the opposite. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, um, that one quote, and you probably know where it's from, but where it's, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. That, you know, um, so, you know, there are, I, I, I mean, you can Google and you can get, you know, a hundred different um, Bible quotes about being kind to your partner, not, you know, not hurting your partner. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we always pick out these few little ones that say that, you know, that, that kind of appear to justify um, some sort of uh, abuse of, by husbands and to wives. Um, so the scripture is conflicting, and as is the case with everything in scripture, it's open to interpretation. I mean that's what makes exactly. different denominations is their their interpretation of different you know um pieces of the bible or of the, you know whatever um so when you're dealing with clergy people when you're dealing with um ministers for example who interpret these bible quotes these scriptural quotes as being um some sort of um permission for mistreating a woman how how do you deal with that how do you discuss that it's it's very difficult to discuss anything in religion um how do you do that how do you approach um people well, that, with, with, um, that have those attitudes one of the things that i do is i direct them to download an article on our website which is a multi-faith common on religion and abuse. It's about 14 pages long, and our founder, along with a rabbi and someone from the Muslim faith, put it together, and the scripture is there. So it explains how faith can be a resource or a roadblock, and then there are whole sections of it that talk about how scripture is misused, and it quotes the scripture, you know, verse and chapter. So the ministers or the imams or the uh, spiritual teachers, you know, when they're faced with, um, you know, the proper exact scripture in terms of what it says and then the um, appropriate appropriate interpretation, it's usually a a situation where it kind of opens their eyes. They're like, oh, now I see. I didn't really understand. But we also have um, other articles and DVDs and brochures that we give to ministers or imams. I'm sorry I keep saying ministers because I know we're multi-faith. But but the point is being that there is scripture in any uh, situation that shows or prove that the number one priority for clergy member is to support and help that family to be safe, to do whatever they can to, you know, to provide safety and make their uh, con- their uh, 
place of worship, a a, sanctu- a true sanctuary, a true place where people can come and talk about what's happening with them and get support. Yeah. Well, and when we talk about faith communities, um, you know, we've been talking about clergy, but the fact is there's a congregation involved as well. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, that faith community, that congregation, also has a role to play, does it not? Yes, they do. And we talk to um, lay leaders and members of the congregation about how to appropriately respond. If someone discloses that they are being abused, how to respond, what to say and what not to say. But the number one priority is to listen and believe her. You know, it's really important that they understand because some people, their first tendency might be to say, are you kidding me? I can't believe, you know, like that. So we we have uh, resources to tell them that's not the proper way. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I mean, somebody clearly, somebody who is seeking out help in this area, that's a risky thing to do. It's a very risky thing for uh, anyone to do is to admit that there is a huge problem here and I need to get help with it, especially knowing that that particular person that you're trying to get help from may have you you may have some pretty severe consequences for seeking this help um so the act of going and getting uh you know reaching out um it just it it's huge it's just huge um so then if the reaction is well but we don't believe you or we're poo-pooing you or we think you're exaggerating um and we like good old joe your husband better um, that is, I mean, that has to be just more beyond devastating. Right. So, so do, think do about this. Move? Go. Uh-huh. Think about this. If a clergy member is educated and they are opening the door to have safe discussions about it, if they give a sermon about it, if they have information in the women's lounge or restroom, that information is for the women who are being abused, but it, that information that we provide is also for members of the congregation, what they should say, how they should respond. Give the woman the 800 number where they can call a national advocate who has years of experience in talking with them. So. Once a clergy member makes it a priority to educate and respond appropriately and to make sure that every level of the congregation understands their role, then that will help people understand how to respond appropriately. Have you ever heard of congregations that actually um, make it a priority to discuss, uh, say, for, you know, I mean, oftentimes um, congregations will say, okay, our focus this year is going to be on such and such, or our focus for this season is going to be talking, you know, for like adult Bible school or something, is to focus on such and such. Do they ever do that? Have you ever heard of, of congregations doing that with a domestic violence issue? Yes, we have. We have probably thousands over the years of Faith Trust Institute is 40. This is 2017. This is our 40th anniversary. We started in 1977, which is pretty amazing. But we get uh, requests from churches and from synagogues. We get requests from faith communities really all over the world 
wanting to know what can they do. And so once they make that a commitment, then they'll have, uh, let's say, activities like a safe Sunday. And on that particular Sunday, they will invite advocates and people who are familiar with how to address domestic violence to come and speak at the church or at the community center or at a synagogue. And then we will also, uh, they will also do things like uh, have the clergy member preach a sermon and then have a list of resources that are available in the book, you know, in the bulletin or on a PowerPoint presentation or whatever kind of media that they use to uh, communicate during a worship service. And we have many, many uh, faith communities that they have set times during the year on a Women's Day program or a social justice program, a faith and, you know, uh, faith and justice, social justice change. There's just different kinds of um, campaigns or uh, initiatives in different denominations where um, they have made a commitment um, to domestic violence. Like the, um, we do a lot of work with United Methodist Women, and they spend a lot of time, they're totally committed to preventing and addressing domestic violence from a faith perspective, and they have funded um, national conferences and online education and training sessions across the country that they have funded with Faith Trust so that we're out there in the community educating members of the congregation. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're talking a lot about how, you know, it's it's not helpful uh, going to uh, the clergy person for help for a victim. Um, But some of the studies show that it can be very helpful. Um, I, I was looking for a, a quote here, but there was a uh, I, one of the things that I read was that um, you know clergy is in a unique position because we look at them, even those of us who are not particularly religious, will look at a clergy person as having kind of a foot in both worlds, um, the day-to-day world as well as the spiritual world, and so. You know, I mean, when you go to your attorney, you don't necessarily think of that attorney as having a foot in the spiritual world. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a unique position uh, for a person to be uh, a religious spokesperson, a re- religious um, uh, leader. Um, when we go to them, when we're looking to them for advice, I guess maybe it's a heavy burden because of that uh, foot in both worlds. But again, the 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 way that they um, present their advice is flavored by their beliefs. I, I guess that's not that different for everyone. Um, but um, how can they? And, and I guess I'm, I'm having a really t- hard time stra- formulating this question. Um, how can a clergy person? bridge that gap and make it successful for a person who's having a, such a real-life, day-to-day problem like being abused by their spouse. I, I guess what I'm asking deep down is, how do you bring in the spiritual without doing just the, well, you need to pray about it and go back? Does that question make any well, sense whatsoever? Well, <laughs> it does. I know, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and... One of the things that we talk about is that clergy should know 
their role in their faithful response, that they should know and understand that it is their role to recognize the signs of abuse and to give a referral to a domestic violence agency or advocate, that their role is to offer spiritual support and to act as a friend and a confidant and to trust the survivor's decisions. So we have uh, information and we put together information over the years that it, it, these are the things that a clergy member should consider before they, that's why we want them to have the training because they need to consider these these uh, situations and beliefs and be and do some prayer and some reflection on their own so that they really come to a realization of what their role is and how it fits in with their religious beliefs because the information is there, as we just talked about, but they have to seek it out. You know, our founder, uh, Reverend Dr. Marie Fortune, she started Faith Trust. She said one time one of the first things that she does when she uh, speaks with a clergy member is she tells them one day, ask the congregation, how many people in this organization have, know someone who, they don't have to be specific, but how many people know someone who is a victim of domestic violence? Just ask that question and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes clergy members will say, no, we don't have that problem. You know, we don't have that problem. Well, you have the problem, you have the situation, but you you haven't made your uh, sanctuary a place where women feel safe to disclose because we know it's happening. So um, once they do something like that, then they will call us back or email us and say, okay. Like we had one minister here in Seattle. He went through this process with Marie Fortune. He preached a sermon about domestic violence. And every time he preaches, they make a recording of his sermon. He said, 1,500 people requested a CD of that sermon. Oh, wow. It's never happened before. Normally, after a sermon, they have to uh, burn maybe two or 300 CDs, 1,500 people. It took them weeks to be able to get that uh, CD to the number of people that requested it. And that was a real eye-opening experience for him. And so, yeah. You know. Boy, that's a large church. What about the smaller mm-hmm. churches? Do they handle it differently? I I um. I I tend to be what I don't I don't have a, a, a an adjective for what I am. You know how the term luddite people who don't believe in technology and you know the, the I'm that way when it comes to large. <laughs> I don't care mm-hmm. if it's a city or a group. I just feel like large is not better. <laughs> um, right. So. Is there a different response, do you think, with um, smaller groups? Well, I think the response is the same, but the situation is different because we work with uh, small and rural faith communities. And so, you know, in a smaller community of 30 people, 50 people, maybe 100 people or 200, um, of course there are going to be less people 
less survivors in that congregation. Less, there's going to yeah. be a smaller percentage of women that are being abused. But, but it's also going to be more be likely less that you resources. know everybody in the congregation. Yeah, the, the clergy member probably knows everybody by name in a smaller church. And you would think, knowing that, and with that being the situation, that a clergy member in a smaller congregation would be more aware of when someone is being abused, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. Um, because it's a very well kept secret for the most part. You know, I mean, it it re- for a variety of reasons. You know, it's difficult to disclose. It's difficult to deal with. There's risk involved. I mean, it, it's 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 really a, a difficult. It's not like it's just right out there and opens for for everybody to see. Well, again, looking at my research um, and uh, and the study that I was telling you about, um, it said that the two big um, we t- we've talked a lot about why it's not helpful or how it cannot be helpful um, to seek uh, assistance from your clergy person or your spiritual leader. But this study also uh, very wisely pointed out when is it when it is helpful, and the. Victims who were who were surveyed in this study said that there were two ways that going to their their um, religious leader was helpful in dealing with domestic violence, and that was when the leaders, the church leaders, put safety concerns over the sanctity of marriage, right, as opposed mm-hmm. to saying you have to stay with your husband at all costs. So that was the main thing that people who sought out um, um, help from their faith community ended up saying is that when the leaders put safety over the sanctity of marriage, that that was when they got the most help. And when you deal with uh, ministers or with faith communities or whatever, I, I heard you say before that that is the main thing that you look at is the safety, you know, what's what's safe. Um, right. When you, yeah, when you deal with um, religious groups and you're trying to train uh, religious leaders um, who have very strong beliefs in um, the man being the head of the household and the um, uh, the the marriage unit being um, ironclad, it, it, does that require special training on your on your part? I, um, how do you deal with that? Well, we have training that specifically addresses that. And so the training um, uh, covers the scripture or the theology behind those beliefs. And we give examples of scripture. And we talk about situations where people have come to understand that scripture can be misused and that some of the beliefs that they have are not conducive to providing safety in that congregation. And Heather, one of the things that is a major thrust for us right now is to provide training in seminaries because Ah, there are many seminaries right now that are using our information and materials to train 
seminary students so that when they're ordained and they're out there working in a congregation, they've already received this as part of their education. At one time, probably 15 or 20 years ago, you would not find courses on the faithful response to domestic violence as a course or as a topic on a syllabus. So that's one thing that we're doing. The other thing is there are congregations, I mean, I'm sorry, denominations that are saying every newly ordained minister or clergy member has to take a training on domestic violence. It's mandatory before they can be ordained or it's mandatory before they can get an assignment to um, minister in a congregation. That's amazing. That's I mean that's absolutely amazing. But again, there's training and there's training. Um, so are are these same congregations looking at the quality of the training, and are they looking at like some an organization like Faith Trust Institute, or are they looking at some of these um, organizations that um, and and every field has it, not just domestic violence, but there are organizations that put together curricula with beliefs that are totally different from what the majority of uh, the, you know, what what the mainstream organizations um, focus on. Are you, are you seeing them going to responsible places for training? Well, there's a lot of people out there in this world that are misinformed. There are a lot of people out there that have beliefs that are not conducive, like I said before, to providing safety for our survivor. And so if a person is going to be counseled or ministered by an organization that makes marriage and keeping the family together their number one priority or they don't believe in the rights of women and they believe, you know, we know it's a man's world, but you know, that's changing, hopefully. If you we, you have people that get that kind of training. But let me I'll give you an example. If we are invited to provide trainers, because we have trainers all across the country, to participate in a domestic violence forum, like we had one recently in uh, Texas and one in Wyoming, where we had, you know, smaller churches and more rural communities, we have information that in a, forum or panel discussion, if there's a person there that has received that training or has uh, been, um, that is convinced of something different from what uh, we know to be true, then we can have a a really um, great discussion around that. We have the information to counteract or to make clear what we believe is really the true situation. But as we all know, there are people who are not open to change. They're not going to study. They believe in tradition. Their fa- Let's say their family has been in a religious tradition for centuries, and they believe what they have been taught. They don't grow or change, or they're not open to new situations. They're not open to new interpretations, and they don't believe that uh, they're, that they believe in certain um, interpretations of Scripture, and there's nothing we can do. Like they say, yep. you know, you can't necessarily have an impact on everyone. 
That's you, true. You know, it happens. But, but little by little, step by step. Um, can you tell me um, how, if some Carolyn, if somebody's interested in the Faith Trust Institute, how they can contact them if um, a, a congregation or a member of a congregation thinks that this is something that, that their um, community needs to learn more about? What would they do? They can call us at 206-634-1903. They can go on our website, which is our name, faithtrustinstitute.org. They can uh, write us a letter. And it's important for people to know that they can contact us and they don't have to give their name or they don't have to say what faith community they're with, but we will do everything in their in our power to provide them with the education and resources and referrals that um, they need. And so yeah. that, is, you know, and when someone is interested in um, addressing domestic violence, we're one of the pioneers. We were out there in 1977 when people weren't even talking about this, when Marie Fortune started his organization. And so if you go online and you Google domestic violence from a faith perspective, we're going to pop up. We're going to be number one or two probably on that page because – We've been doing this for a long time, and we have many, many testimonials from people that we have helped their congregations. Yeah, and I, I, I really believe um, that congregations are key here. I think, you know, we we don't necessarily just uh, put it all on one person for this kind of thing. This is the kind of thing where congregations can, uh, you know, take the lead and say, yeah, this is something that I think we that that we think that we need to focus on, that we need to learn more about, and. Um, I, Obviously, Faith Trust Institute is a good place to start. Um, whether they choose to go with, with you know, uh, the training from you or not, it's a, definitely a good place to start and um, uh, with the experience and the background. We have about five minutes left, Carolyn. Was there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about during this hour that you would like to share? Well, um, one of the things that we didn't talk about is that I would like to discuss is the impact of domestic violence on children. Because mm. sometimes our survivor may give up and not reach out or make any changes because she's just decided or been told this is what she has to deal with. But when they start to see the impact that domestic violence has on children, children who are exposed to domestic violence at a young age end up having different issues and problems in life about the role of respecting women. You know, when a child grows up and sees a parent constantly being put down and ridiculed, especially uh, a young woman, that's why there's such a, uh epidemic of teen dating violence because if a young woman sees that in her home or a child, then when a boyfriend or uh, someone she has an intimate relationship with starts to treat her that way, she might believe that this is just the way the world is. Yeah. And so I think that if people one of the things that people can really do is uh, to make take action because we have a list of things on our website that says what an individual can do. And one of the things is to read an article or 
download one of our free online webinars that talks about what exposure to domestic violence, what is that impact on a child. And it has an impact for years and years to come. And so if we can start to make sure that children are not raised in that kind of environment, then we can also make an impact on how young women will start to say, this is not acceptable in this relationship and get out of the relationship before it becomes violent. And for young men, we have uh, information to help educate young men about how to respect and have healthy relationships with the women in their lives, not just their girlfriends, but their sisters and their mothers and, you know, women in the community. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think that that's, a, a, you know, sometimes we forget that relationships aren't all just marital relationships between men and women, and it's significant and important uh, for fathers um, to have relationships with their daughters and to understand these issues with their sisters and their mothers and uh, mm-hmm. their aunts. Um, you know, it, it's not just um, uh, husband-wife in, in our society, and thank goodness for that. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's an issue that um, uh, is very dear to my heart. I, I always say that I wish I could go to every single confer- uh, congregation in the world and just have a conversation about domestic violence and why it's important uh, for congregations and for that uh, community to be a part of understanding and helping these kinds of situations. So I thank you for the work that you're doing, and I thank you for the work that the Faith Trust Institute is doing. It's been a delight to have you on the show. We didn't mention that you were actually on my show once before. Has it it's been a couple years, has it? I think it has, hasn't it? It has, yes. It's been yeah, a couple years. Yeah. I think it was in two thousand fourteen when I was on your show before. Okay. Well it is still just two thousand sixteen for another twelve, fourteen hours here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so right. okay. well thank you very much for coming back and um I always uh end the show with a quote and I had a hard time finding a quote today. Sometimes it's easier than others to find quotes that apply. But uh, again, um this quote is from I gotta look up the the title here. This uh quote is from Colleen Shannon Louie. And it says, most clergy play the role of interpreting and shaping people's understanding of the world in the context of their religion. Therefore, members of the clergy can be particularly powerful in shaping expectations of acceptable family behavior. And I think that's very true. They can shape our opinions of what is acceptable family behavior. And um, I I, I liked that quote. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more than just you know the the you know I think sometimes we think that the spiritual teachings are separate from our day to day lives, and I think that that quote kind of explains how it actually applies um, for family and family behavior, and of course, family behavior is reflected in our world behavior. So thank you again, Carolyn uh, Scott Brown, for being with us on the show and sharing with us some of the work and some of your understanding of the clergy and domestic violence. Next week we're going to have Dr. Gil Wyatt uh, talking about the lasting effects of trauma. And uh, I think that I saw a, a, a posting somewhere where there were two brain scans, one of a brain with PTSD and one of a brain without, and the differences were significant. And the comment under that was, this 
is why she can't just get over it and let it go. There are actual physical lasting effects of trauma as well as the emotional and financial and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to have Dr. Gil Wyatt with us next week. And uh, we've got some good shows lined up for 2017 coming up. So I hope you'll stick with us on Three Women, Three Ways. And we are the show that tackles some of these difficult topics. Don't forget that you can go to the website and watch any or listen to any archive show. Just scroll down the list and we'll be there for you to listen to at any time. Thank you. Have a great 2017.